All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 38 for May 2022. Through the Looking Glass, the Lewis Carroll Connections. Eldridge Reeves Johnson, Morris Longstreth Parrish, Arthur Burdett Frost, and Charles W. Sulis. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and volunteer podcaster. Frequently, when independent amateur historians like myself get involved in researching something, we talk about going down the rabbit hole, a metaphor for an adventure into the unknown. That's from its use from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Industrialist Eldridge Reeves Johnson took money from the millions he earned by developing the Victor Talking Machine Company and used it to purchase the original copy of Alice's Adventures Underground, lettered and drawn by the author himself. Bibliophile Morris Longstreth Parrish purchased as much of Carroll's work as he could, all in the best possible condition, so that his name became synonymous with mint condition. And lithographer and artist Arthur Burdett Frost impressed Carroll enough that he supplied illustrations for one of his books of poetry. And in a tenuous but fun connection, I will tell you of a Sutter City restaurateur whose specialty was mock turtle soup. All in the May episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, Through the Looking Glass, the Lewis Carroll Connections. On the 4th of July in 1862, civil war was raging in America. Both sides were licking their wounds after the Battle of Malvern Hill, the final conflict in the Seven Days Battle between the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, led by General Robert E. Lee, and the Union Army of the Potomac under Philadelphian Major General George B. McClellan, which had been fought on the first of the month. On that same July 4th in Oxford, England, 32-year-old Charles Lutwidge Dodgson rode up the branch of the Thames that flows through Oxford in a boat with the three young daughters of his friend, scholar Henry Little. Lorena Charlotte Little, age 13, Alice Pleasance Little, age 10, and Edith Mary Little, age 8. During the eight-kilometer trip, Dodgson spun a tale for the girls that he described in his diary as Alice's Adventures Underground. 
Alice Little asked him to write it down, unlike other stories he had told her. This one she wanted to preserve. She got the manuscript more than two years later, 92 pages hand-lettered by Dodgson with his own illustrations, which were later used as a template by artist John Tenniel when the book was published under his pen name, Lewis Carroll. He took a small picture of little Alice Little and pasted it on the final page. On the first page, he wrote in illuminated letters, a Christmas gift to a dear child in memory of a summer day. And he gave it to the little girl for Christmas in 1864. Alice treasured the book for nearly 65 years. For a while, she dated Prince Leopold of Albany, youngest child and son of Queen Victoria, and Prince Albert. And she may have hoped to marry him, but Victoria was adamant that her son wed a woman of royal blood. However, Leopold named his first child Alice. And when Alice married Reginald Hargreaves, she named her second son Leopold, and the prince became his godfather. Alice's two oldest sons, Alan and Leopold, were killed in the Great War, and she was widowed in 1926. She found herself in financial difficulty in 1928 and reluctantly decided to sell her precious manuscript at auction. The book-buying world went rather crazy at this opportunity to own the original of a book that had been translated into more than a hundred languages and read by millions of people around the world. The sale took place at 1 p.m. on Tuesday, the 3rd of April, 1928, and 300 spectators squeezed into Sotheby's Dark Oak Auction Room in Mayfair. There were other pieces of literary memorabilia on the block that day, including Samuel Johnson's final letter and a pair of Lord Byron's dueling pistols, but there was no doubt about who was the star of the show, Lot 319, which alongside Carroll's manuscript included six letters from him about the facsimile edition. The book was 20 centimeters, about the size of an iPad mini. The sales catalog boasted, it is hardly too much to describe this lot as the most attractive literary manuscript ever offered for sale. Attention in the room soon focused on four bidders. The British Museum, which was represented by the London firm of Quaritches, two antiquarian book dealers, and the wealthy private collector, Dr. Abraham Simon Wolf Rosenbach of Philadelphia. Bidding opened at 5,000 pounds. It rose swiftly in increments of 1,000 pounds. The British Museum dropped out at 12,500 pounds, and the last dealer at 15,200 pounds. Dr. Rosenbach secured his prize for 15,400 pounds. That's about four times the reserve price. It was $75,260 in 1928 money, equivalent to about $1.2 million today. At the time, this was a record for a book sold at auction. It beat the 15,100 pounds paid for a first folio of Shakespeare in December 1919. 
The New York Times noted in its front page article, quote, a few hands clap, then the crowd starts melting away. Over near the rostrum, an old woman, once little Alice, brushes a handkerchief across her eyes, and then she too vanishes. People noted that Rosenbach never immediately outbid Quaritch's, representing the British Museum. He only raised the bid when one of the other dealers outbid the museum. After his purchase, Rosenbach immediately offered to sell the precious manuscript to the British Museum at the cost he had paid for it. But he was politely refused. He even offered to contribute a thousand pounds toward raising a fund by popular subscription to purchase the book for the British nation. They declined. And the original manuscript of Alice's Adventures Underground came to the United States on the ocean liner Majestic to make its home in and around Philadelphia for the next 20 years. Three weeks later, Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach met Eldridge Reeves Johnson, founder of the Victor Talking Machine Company, who was unable to resist, quote, the lure of the little volume, end quote, and he bought it for $150,000. That's nearly $2.5 million today. This gave Dr. Rosenbach a 100% return on his three-week investments. Eldridge Reeves Johnson was born on 6 February 1867 in Wilmington, Delaware, to Asa Johnson and Carolyn Reeves Johnson. His mother died when he was two years old. He attended Dover Academy until he was 15 years old, but was purportedly told by his teachers, you need to learn a trade. You are too stupid to go to college. The next year, he moved to Philadelphia, and he stayed with his stepmother's sister while working 60 hours a week as an apprentice repairing heavy machines used for printing and wire stitching. After four years, he took a job at a machine shop in Camden, New Jersey. It was a 20-by-40-foot building behind the Collings Carriage Company. The shop had been purchased by Captain Andrew Skull for his son, John Skull, that's S-C-U-L-L. He was a mechanical engineering graduate of Lehigh University. John was making an automatic bookbinding machine, but he died suddenly in 1888 before he had turned 20. Since Captain Skull had no personal interest in the business, he offered Johnson the position of foreman and asked him to complete the bookbinding machine. The Skull's father and son are interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the Edgewood section. Johnson completed this project in 1890, and then he headed to Washington State in hopes of starting his own business. But he returned to the Delaware Valley in less than a year. Captain Skull had been unable to market the bookbinding machine, and he offered Johnson his old job as foreman in exchange for half of all future profits. Johnson spent the next two years redesigning an improved bookbinding machine, which he patented in 1893. He set up the New Jersey Wire Stitching Machine Company, which soon combined with Skull and Johnson to become the Eldridge R. Johnson Manufacturing Company. 
Johnson's life changed in February 1896 when a customer brought him a relatively new device called a gramophone. It played music off of a disc, and it had to be hand-cranked. He asked Johnson to design a spring motor for the device. His initial design was rejected, but Johnson became enamored with a machine that talked. Thomas Edison had developed the first recording instrument, which he called the phonograph. And on 4 December 1877, he recorded and played back his own voice. He recited Mary Had a Little Lamb, a poem written by Laurel Hill Cemetery resident Sarah Josepha Hale. Edison's phonograph required recording the sound image on a hollow cylinder with a soft surface, first on tin foil, later on wax. The recording stylus moved up and down with the audio signal. It was perpendicular to the cylinder surface. This up and down stylus motion is often called the vertical or hill and dale recording process. Edison thought the machine might have some use for taking dictation. Eleven years later, in 1888, German immigrant Emil Berliner developed a flat disc player which he called a gramophone. This cutting stylus moved laterally or parallel to the disc surface. The gramophone played from a wax-covered zinc disc with a stylus cutting away the wax to form a recorded groove. Acid then cut the recording groove in the zinc, while the wax protected the zinc surface where no groove had been cut. Berliner then placed the zinc master into an alkaline bath, which deposited copper onto the zinc master. The zinc would then be removed by sulfuric acid, leading a copper-negative image of the zinc master. Sulfuric acid does not attack copper. This copper negative could then be used to stamp many recorded discs, but this process destroyed the zinc original master, so only one copper stamper could be produced. The resulting Berliner gramophone recordings were louder and the discs sturdier than Edison wax cylinders, but they were also noisy as sound was distorted by the acid etching process. This gramophone was initially more a toy than a delicate instrument because of its cheap and crude hand crank construction. Berliner's initial models were manufactured in Germany, including a mechanism for a talking doll. But he set up the Berliner Gramophone Company in Philadelphia, and he demonstrated his technical advances periodically at the Franklin Institute. As an aside, when the idea for the Grammys, named after the gramophone, was developed in the late 1950s, they were almost named the Eddies, after Thomas Edison. It was the gramophone that captivated Eldridge Reeves Johnson. Quote, the little instrument was badly designed. It sounded like a partially educated parrot with a sore throat and a cold in the head. But the little wheezy instrument caught my attention and held it fast and hard. I became interested in it as I had never been interested in anything else. With a few months of tinkering, Johnson had built both an acceptable spring motor and an improved sound box. Berliner was impressed. He ordered a pilot run of 100 units in August 1896. 
And that same year, Johnson began experimenting with an improved process of recording on flat wax-like discs, an electro-typed matrix of the recording. And multiple stampers could be made from this master matrix. He cautiously applied for a patent in 1898. He did not receive that patent for another 10 years. This was at a time when there were patent wars over sound devices. Berliner got into patent disputes with other companies. Johnson worried that his new method of producing recordings, he'd invested his entire life savings of more than $50,000 in this project. He was worried that it would be shut down. On 12 January 1900, Eldridge Reeves Johnson produced his first commercial recording, a 7-incher, using the record label Improved Gramophone Record. By August, he had formed the Consolidated Talking Machine Company, whose main office was in the Stephen Girard building at Girard and 12th Streets in Center City. The metal parts plant was in Camden, and records were pressed by the Duranoid Manufacturing Company of Newark, New Jersey. Later that year, he received permission from Berliner to use the special trademark he had obtained of a curious fox terrier listening at a gramophone horn. The painting was called His Master's Voice. Johnson was forced to drop the name Gramophone from his products about this time. So on 12 March 1901, he was granted registration of the trademark Victor. Purportedly, Johnson considered his first improved gramophone to be both a scientific and business victory. He also emerged as the victor in the series of lengthy and costly patent litigations he went through to establish his own company. And, by coincidence, Queen Victoria had died just a few weeks earlier. After more legal wrangling, a decision was reached to combine Berliner's patents, Johnson's patents, and Johnson's manufacturing activity into a new company, and the Victor Talking Machine Company of Camden, New Jersey was incorporated on 3 October 1901, with Eldridge Johnson as president. He retained 60% of the company's stock. At about the same time, Victor won its first gold medal at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. And before the year was out, an organization of 10,000 dealers was established. By the end of the calendar year, the fledgling Victor Company sales were $500. The first catalog consisted mainly of selections by military bands, recitations, and comedies. The next step was to increase the number of selections of recordings available. Victor reached out and recorded many musicians in its Camden studios. Victor sold 1,696,000 records in 1902. They also established their first recording laboratory at Carnegie Hall on 26 March 1903, and on 30 April made their first Red Seal recording. Italian tenor Enrico Caruso signed his first contract with Victor the following year. Other classical and opera artists soon followed. By 1904, sales had grown to $3 million. The next year, sales reached $12 million. And in 1907, 
sales had jumped to $27 million per year. E.R. Johnson and his company had struck gold. In September 1906, Victor introduced a new line of talking machines with the turntable and the amplifying horn tucked away inside a wooden cabinet in an attempt to make a phonograph look more like furniture and less like machinery. It was made under the trademark of Victrola, and it was an immediate hit. Small tabletop models sold for as little as $15, but fancy models went all the way up to $600 for Chippendale and Queen Anne styles. At their peak of sales in the 1920s, before radios started taking over, Victrolas were the most popular home entertainment device in America, and 7,000 men were working to build Victrola cabinets, which the company was making at the rate of one per minute. Well, pretty much everyone knows Thomas Edison's early sound recordings, and many people know of the contributions of Emil Berliner. Eldridge Reeves Johnson's influences on the recording industry are far greater. The early machines had been low in volume, high in noise, variable in pitch, and primitive in sound. By many improvements, small and large, Johnson and his co-workers improved each of these characteristics. Increased volume, reduced noise, steady pitch, general quality of reproduction. This is what transformed a toy or novelty device into an entertainment medium. No developer prior to Eldridge Johnson had succeeded in achieving this. His methods also allowed practical and economical production of mass recordings. And in addition to being an inventor, he was an astute businessman. He had a strong strategic vision, which led him to invest in continued technology development and in competent people, leading to a strong management team. He was an early advocate of spreading company stock ownership, not only to managers, but widely within Victor Talking Machine Company. Several of his middle managers became millionaires. He also practiced what is now called management by walking around. He would circulate around the company shops and buildings, speaking with employees to find out what was going on. Many of the business plans developed by E.R. Johnson are still extant today. Another of Johnson's innovations was advertising. It's hard to pick up a magazine published in the 1920s without seeing at least one advertisement for Victrola's or Victor Recordings. The company made records for everyone, and they sold them around the world in more than 50 different languages. The first record with jazz on the label, spelled J-A-S-S, was the original Dixieland One Step, issue 18255 by Victor Talking Machine Company in 1917. The first commercial recordings of what was considered instrumental music in the traditional country style were Arkansas Traveler and Turkey in the Straw by fiddlers Henry Gilliland and A.C. Eck Robertson on 30 June 1922 for Victor Records and released in April 1923. Their best-selling artist was Italian opera singer Enrico Caruso, who made $50,000 a year in royalties just from record sales. 
Victor's records were the behemoth of recordings for entertainment for more than a decade. Eldridge Reeves Johnson and many of his co-workers got very, very rich. In January 1927, Johnson and his main partner sold their interests in the Victor Talking Machines Company to a group of investment bankers, who in turn sold the company to the growing new Radio Corporation of America, which would eventually form the RCA Victor Company. By the time he sold his interest in the company, he had expanded from his tiny workshop to a sprawling multi-acre complex of 20 blocks in Camden, with its headquarters on the bank of the Delaware River, overseen by a tower with stained glass representations of the company mascot Nipper, listening quizzically at the horn of a Victrola. Johnson walked away from the deal with a fortune estimated at $25 million two years before the Great Depression and just before radio took over as the predominant instrument of home entertainment. He was not yet 60 years old. He decided that he should have a proper yacht. The Carolyn, named for his mother, was launched in July 1931 at a cost of more than $1.5 million. Now, at some point, Johnson had become practically obsessed with the story of the young girl Alice and her surreal, convoluted world, and he acquired numerous first editions of the volume. But his quest for all things Alice culminated in 1928 with the purchase of the one item that, quote, really did render him the enjoyment which was proportional to its cost the original manuscript of Alice's Adventures Underground, written in the hand of its author. One British newspaper noted the island's loss of its beloved Alice by lamenting that, quote, Alice will be required in her leisure hours to play baseball with a flamingo, end quote. Johnson so treasured the original Alice that he had it housed in a steel cabinet constructed to look like a fine mahogany cabinet with unbreakable glass so he could keep the manuscript with him and share it with his guests whenever he went aboard his yacht. Yes, he kept the original Alice on his yacht. E.R. Johnson became one of the nation's most generous philanthropists. He sat as a member of the Board of Trustees for the University of Pennsylvania for 20 years, and in 1929 pledged an endowment of $800,000 to establish the E.R. Johnson Foundation for Research and Medical Physics, which is now the school's Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics and host to the ongoing Eldridge Reeves Johnson Professorship. This Johnson Endowment, which provided for facilities and equipment, was the first grand effort to join physics and medicine in a closer union. Astonishingly, there have only been three shareholders in its 90-plus years of existence. As of 2022, the position is currently open. In October 1932, Johnson offered the use of his yacht Carolyn to the Smithsonian Institution for marine exploration of the tropical Atlantic. Along with its 42-man crew, he contributed $50,000 to fund the actual expedition. 
But Mr. Johnson reserved the right to bring aboard a number of distinguished guests, his family, his colleagues, and their families, who would occupy the first-class quarters on the vessel and essentially use the expedition as their excuse to spend the winter months in the warm climes of the Caribbean region of the West Atlantic. On the guest list were Johnson's former business partner in the Victor Company, Leon Douglas, his wife and their two daughters, as well as personal friend Dr. George Dana Boardman Darby, a dentist from Marion Park, Pennsylvania, whose daughter Janet married Johnson's son, Eldridge Reeves Fenimore Johnson. Darby is interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the Weston Mausoleum in the Summit section. Johnson and his family lived in Brydenhart, a mansion in Moorestown, New Jersey, which had been commissioned in 1894 by Samuel Leeds Allen, inventor of the flexible flyer sled. But he also acquired land in Lower Marion Township, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. And shortly after the Great War, Johnson donated this property to the township, along with money to build a Gothic structure using local stone in tribute to local residents who had served in that war. Located on Hazelton Avenue in Marion Station, it is known as the Marion Tribute House. It's a popular location for weddings, bar mitzvahs, big parties, and other activities. On 14 November 1945, Eldridge Reeves Johnson died at Breitenbart at age 78. On 13 April 1946, Johnson's copy of Alice's Adventures Underground again went on the auction block, along with other items from his estate, this time at the Parc Bernay Galleries. And for a second time, it was purchased by Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach, this time for $50,000. Rosenbach's good friend and client, Lessing Rosenwald, suggested it would be an appropriate gesture for the American people to present the manuscript as a gift to the British people through the British Museum. And in 1948, the official change of hands of this priceless document was made by the Library of Congress. After 20 years in the United States, Alice returned to her homeland from Wonderland on 15 November. In 2015, Alice's Adventures Underground made a brief return to America to put in a guest appearance at an exhibit at the Rosenbach on Delancey Street called Down the Rabbit Hole, celebrating 150 years of Alice in Wonderland. It now, again, safely resides in the British Museum. On 26 February 1985, Eldridge Reeves Johnson posthumously received the 1984 Grammy Trustee Award, given to persons who made a significant contribution in the field of recording. His award is on display at the Johnson Victrola Museum, which is located in Dover, Delaware. Eldridge Reeves Johnson's final resting place is a mausoleum in the Rockland section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery with his wife Elsie, who outlived him by 16 years, their son Eldridge Fenimore Johnson, who lived until 1986, and Fen's wife Janet Darby Johnson, who died at age 102 in 2000. The mausoleum is on the bike path from Barmouth to Pencoid.
Eldridge Reeves Johnson was, as we have seen, an avid collector of the works of Lewis Carroll. Living an almost parallel life of book collecting and Caroliana was Morris Longstreth Parrish, a passionate collector of Victorian literature, who was born the same year as Johnson, 1867, and he died the year before him in 1944. Book collectors have their own language when describing the condition of books. Some terms are obvious. Very fine, abbreviated VF, or as new, means the book looks just like it reemerged from the bindery. No defects or marks, perfect dust jacket. You move a few notches down the grade, you get good. It's an average used or worn book. It has all the pages and leaves present, but it may be missing the dust jacket or have loose joints. Other terms you might see, fine, reading copy, ex-library, or even ARC for advanced reading copy, also known as an uncorrected proof. But Morris Longstreth Parrish, a Philadelphia-based compulsive collector of Victorian literature, especially the works of Anthony Trollope, was so fastidious about the condition of the books he would allow into his personal library that his name eventually became synonymous with a particular sort of condition fetish. The phrase, perish condition became a trade word among bibliophiles for the highest quality standard of first editions, as exemplified by Parrish's purchases. Morris Parrish routinely upgraded the thousands of volumes in his private library with better copies, as such Parrish copies became available, and he was not shy about suggesting that other collectors do the same. Parrish also gave other advice, not all of it which has resonated as well with modern-day book collectors. He summarized some of his advice in a 1934 article for The Colophon, a book collector's quarterly. I think, in the first place, that dust wrappers should be discarded the moment a book is received. That an unopened book has no place in any library. When a book is acquired, I think it should be carefully examined and all incomplete openings perfected. Some dealers have a habit of marking their prices in books. I strongly recommend that every pencil mark of this character be erased. Who is Morris Longstreth Parrish? He was born to a prominent Philadelphia family in 1867. His father and his mother, George Dillwyn Parrish and Sarah Longstreth Price Parrish, were members of two old Philadelphia families. The painter, Maxfield Parrish, was a cousin. An uncle, Edward Parrish, was a noted pharmacist and the first president of Swarthmore College. Morris entered Princeton in the fall of 1884. He lasted about six months. He became a stockbroker in Philadelphia, and a very successful one. And from 1915, he lived in Dormy House, Pine Valley, New Jersey, and he used his money to buy books. He had started doing this in the 1890s. Now, his first major step as a collector was an attempt to complete his family's set of Dickens, which they had purchased as they were being published. As Parrish obtained each missing book, he had it rebound to look like the others. 
He bought a first edition copy of Great Expectations for $250. And when it came back from the binders, he showed it to an experienced collector and asked if he'd paid too much for it. The collector told him that whatever the book had been worth when he bought it, it was now worth, at the most, $25. Thus did Parrish learn one of the basic facts of book collecting. 19th century books must be in their original condition as they were issued by the publisher. Another tenet is that expensive books are not necessarily rare, nor are rare books invariably expensive. He built his collection gradually and did not become a truly serious collector until the time of the Great War. He also traveled and he made friends with the families of many of the authors he was collecting. His major area of interest was English novelists of the 19th century. He tried collecting American authors of the same period, but he could not obtain their works in the condition that he required for a reasonable price. He ended up selling off his American collection in 1938. Parrish's collection was compulsively complete. His Robert Louis Stevenson collection included six Treasure Island, all mint. The Brontes are complete, including an immaculate Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, and Anne Bronte's own copy of Agnes Grey. As a reminder, Anne was the youngest sister. She died at age 29, probably of tuberculosis. His collection included the near-complete works of 24 authors. Thomas Hardy, Charles Dickens, William Makepeace Thackeray, Thomas Macaulay, Edward Bulwer-Lytton, Thomas Carlyle, and others. The works of Lewis Carroll were an early love, and Parrish pursued them with an almost fanatical earnestness. One glaring omission was the 1865 first edition of Alice, which had been rejected by Lewis Carroll and his illustrator John Tenniel because ink from the print was visible through the pages and interfered with Tenniel's illustrations. Carroll ordered the printing stopped and he found another publisher, but a few copies of that rare first edition were bound. Yet, Parrish never bothered to acquire one. He knew that there would probably always be one available when he wanted it. From the 1920s until his death in 1944, Parrish was a client of Mags Brothers, Quaritch, and other high-end dealers in London, New York, and Philadelphia. He maintained a long, learned, and mutually advantageous correspondence with Flora Livingston, the curator of the Harry Elkins Widener Collection at Harvard University. Widener, who went down on the RMS Titanic with his father George, was the son of Eleanor Lukens Elkins Widener Rice, who's buried on Millionaire's Row at Laurel Hill Cemetery, and nephew of Joseph Widener, whom I initially planned to talk about in this podcast, uh, but I will save him for a future podcast on horsemen. Parrish's purchasing agent in England was Falconer Madden, former Bodleian librarian and undergraduate at Christ Church, where he had known Lewis Carroll. When Parrish was negotiating with Carroll's sister, Louisa Fletcher Dodgson, for two of Lewis Carroll's photo albums, there was discussion of eventually repatriating his collection to England. 
Parrish was serious enough about this plan to write a letter to Dean White on 22 November 1928. He said, I am not infrequently a visitor to Oxford, and every time I come, I feel more and more concerned to note that there is no adequate memorial of Mr. Dodgson, either in his college or in the university. And I desire to make an effort to remove or help to remove this blot on the scutcheon of Oxford and Christ Church. I propose to offer the college the whole of my Dodgson collection in good condition and well bound. I shall feel it a duty and privilege to cooperate in raising a fund as well for the building and also for some endowment for the extension of the collection. After much correspondence back and forth, Christ Church finally decided not to take advantage of this offer by Parrish. He wanted the books to be displayed as though it were a museum. And the Bodleian said, we are a library. We are not a museum. Now, when Alice Little Hargraves visited America in 1932 for the centennial of the birth of Charles Dodson, she was 80 years old. She stipulated ahead of time that she would autograph no copies of Alice. This was definite. In her honor, an exhibition of Carol was put on at Columbia University, all from the Dormy House collection and headed by Carol's own copy of the 1866 Alice. During her visit, Mrs. Hargreaves met with Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach and with E.R. Johnson, and Parrish entertained Mrs. Hargreaves at a dinner at Dormy House. She graciously asked to be allowed to autograph an Alice for him as the only exception to her rule. But all of Parrish's copies of Alice were at the Columbia exhibit, and the only copy available was a duplicate of an Italian second edition. Parrish did not hoard his collection. The doors to his library were generally open to students and scholars. He allowed you to handle any of his collections, and he would also generously loan portions of his collection for exhibitions in Philadelphia, New York, and Princeton. In 1939, Princeton University awarded Parrish with an honorary MA, making him a member in full of the Princeton graduating class of 1988. Morris Longstreth Parrish died at Pennsylvania Hospital in July 1944 after suffering a stroke. On the 11th of that month, he was interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section U, Lots 541 and 557. Parrish left an estate of about $200,000 to relatives. His collection of 6,300-plus volumes, plus nearly 1,800 Lewis Carroll mathematical manuscripts and another 1,000 manuscript items were all donated to Princeton University's Rare Books and Special Collections Department. Today, most of the Parrish collection is housed in its own room, which includes Parrish's desk, and, like the Horace Howard Furnace and Henry Charles Lee rooms at the Van Pelt Library, strives to recreate Parrish's private library at Dormy House in Pine Valley. Parrish published mostly bibliographies of his collections. One of his books, which is still available, is Victorian Lady Novelists. 
Another is a compendium of his Carolayana collection, a list of the writings of Lewis Carroll, Charles L. Dodson, in the library at Dormy House, Pine Valley, New Jersey. It was privately printed in 1928, and a second volume came out in 1933. It was limited to 66 copies of each volume. I found a copy online from Michael L. Thompson Rare Books. They won $1,000 for it, but I had to smile as I read the description. End papers lightly foxed, light wear at foot of spine of volume one. A near fine set. In other words, Morris L. Parrish's book is not in Parrish condition. Well, spring is here and the hours have expanded. Both cemeteries are open from 7 a.m. until 7 p.m. Both live and virtual tours are available for the curious. Check out the laurelhillcemetery.org slash events. At Laurel Hill in May, the big event is on Saturday the 21st from noon until 5 p.m. The Market of the Macabre. You will find dealers of everything from unusual antiques, vintage items, Victorian lace work, artwork, handmade wares, and we'll give mini tours while you're there. And there'll be some live acoustic music. There's a $5 donation in advance or at the gate and plan on figuring out a way to park because there is really no parking lot and we generally have a couple of thousand people show up for this thing. So maybe public transportation or using one of the ride services would be the smart way to get to the grounds on Saturday the 21st for the Market of the Macabre. On Saturday, May 7th at 10 a.m., I am giving an accessible hotspots tour. This is for people with mobility issues or those who use a wheelchair or a scooter. 90 minutes, no stairs, paved path only. We're going to stick in the central section of the cemetery. Millionaire's Row, you will get to see. You will see some of the most beautiful scenery in the city of Philadelphia. If you or friends have avoided Laurel Hill Cemetery because of concerns about getting around, this is your opportunity. We even have some hiking poles at the gatehouse that you can borrow. There are three hotspots tours. This is the general tour, sort of an introductory tour to Laurel Hill Cemetery. Saturday, May 14th, from 1 until 3 p.m., Mike Lewandowski is the tour guide for that. Thursday, May 19th, 10 a.m. to noon, Hotspots tour from Peter Howell, one of the more experienced guides at the cemetery. And then on Friday, May 27th, from 10 a.m. until noon, Hotspots tour from Jerry McCormick. On Sunday, May 29th at noon is our annual Memorial Day, or as I still call it, Decoration Day ceremony. We have Civil War reenactors. We will gather at General Meade's grave. We will identify markers for newly identified Civil War veterans. There will be a 21-gun salute. It will be an afternoon not to forget. That is on Sunday, the 29th, the Memorial Day ceremony. West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Saturday, May 7th from 1 until 2.30 p.m. 
In Perpetual Bloom, Plant Symbolism at West Laurel Hill. This is a new tour. Mackenzie Knight Fox is going to be the guide for that. Uh, we're starting to see some entertainment at the cemeteries. Saturday, May 14th, you get a chance to see Beth. That's M-M-M-B-E-T-H. A musical takeoff on the Scottish play that will be near the conservatory at 6.30 and 8 p.m. You have to order your tickets in advance for that. And then Death Cafe on Tuesday, May 17th from 6.30 to 7.30. It's at the atrium. It's not at the conservatory, not at the bell tower, but at the atrium, which is the first building you encounter when you come onto the property at West Laurel Hill. That is free, but donations are appreciated, and we would like it if you would register. There is a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places tour. That's the introduction tour on Saturday the 28th from 10 a.m. until 11.30 a.m. Sandy Grimwade will be your guide for that. And Boneyard Bookworms on Thursday, May 26th from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. No fee for the Boneyard Bookworms, but do please register. There are no virtual hotspot tours in May, but there are still the on-demand virtual online tours at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Download the app, and it will take you from either the gatehouse or the pedestrian entrance off Kelly Drive. And also by hitting the events icon, it's shaped like a calendar, you can see all of the upcoming programs for the next month or two. There is something new, a virtual tour of West Laurel Hill Cemetery from the Barmouth entrance off the Kinwood Trail to the Pencoid entrance off Writer's Ferry Road. As I write this, I'm still not sure where its final home will be. For now, if you want to sample this, email me, joe at joelex.net. I will send you a link. And it will be generally available in the next month or two as we settle into our new website. Uh, which should be fun. All new branding for both cemeteries. If you are a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries, there is a members-only podcast I've already done for this year. It concerns a murder victim buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, a Baron von Munchausen imitator buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, and a neurosurgeon opera company founder who's buried in France. He has a cenotaph at Laurel Hill Cemetery. That's one of two members-only podcasts I have planned for this year. I've just started thinking about the second members-only podcast, and it's going to be a good one also. As a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, you also get special live tours, discounts on all tours, discounts on the online gift shop and the actual gift shop and the gatehouse at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Maybe a membership for Mother's Day would be an unexpected surprise gift for mom. Let's get back to the podcast. You have heard me mention Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach a few times in this podcast. Philadelphia-born Abraham Simon Wolf Rosenbach 1876 to 1952, was an American collector, scholar, and seller of rare books and manuscripts. At the auction house Sotheby's in London, he was known as the Terror of the Auction Room. In Paris, he was called the Napoleon of Books. Others called him Dr. R., a robber baron, and the greatest book dealer in the world. 
although he played a role in the lives of many Philadelphians interred at Laurel Hill or West Laurel Hill. His remains are at Mount Sinai, a Jewish cemetery in the Frankfurt section of the city. The honorific doctor came from his 1901 Ph.D. from the University of Pennsylvania. Twice he owned the original Lewis Carroll manuscript of Alice's Adventures Underground. He bought eight Gutenberg Bibles, at least 30 Shakespeare's first folios, a copy of the Bay Psalm book, and the original manuscript of Ulysses. The lifetime total of his purchases is estimated to be more than $75 million. If you go online and enter works by and related to C.L. Dodgson slash Lewis Carroll in the Rosenbach Museum and Library, it's dated February 2020, you will see Dr. Rosenbach's love for the author and his works. The list is 17 pages long, and it's kind of staggering to read. You can see many Carolian items in person by visiting the museum at 2010 Delancey Street, for a special behind-the-bookcases tour, as I did a couple of years ago. Copies of nearly all of Dodgson's public works are there, most as first editions, many inscribed or presentation copies, along with several early translations. Among the Dodgson material are more than 450 of his letters to his publishers, Macmillan and Company, with microfilm of the firm's letters to him, and approximately 100 other letters, mostly to child friends and their parents. Among his correspondents, the grown-up Alice, his sister Louisa, his niece Manella, and his former Oxford colleagues. Other materials include publishing contracts, autographed poems and puzzles, and even corrections to a student's logic exercises. Dodgson's photographic work is represented by more than 20 images, including the only four known surviving nudes of Evelyn and Beatrice Hatch. Illustrations for Dodgson's work include five pencil drawings and 26 proof engravings by John Tenniel for Alice in Wonderland, and another 26 proof engravings and two drawings for Through the Looking Glass. Additionally, there are several drawings by Dodgson himself. It was a humbling experience to hold some of these items in my hands. One photo caught my eye. It was a self-portrait of Dodgson. He had inscribed to A.B. Frost, a name with which I was unfamiliar. So, out of curiosity, I checked the Laurel Hill Cemetery Research app on my smartphone And sure enough, there was A.B. Frost interred in Section C, just a few feet behind the plot of U.S. Marine hero Major Levi Twiggs, whom I talked about in an earlier podcast, Send the Marines, and just a few feet away from the man who became the poster child for embalming during the Civil War, Richard Burr, who will get a podcast eventually. The docent that day showed us a few illustrations done by Frost for Dodson's book of poetry, Rhyme or Reason. The Rosenbach owns 54 of these original drawings. She also mentioned 39 letters by Dodson sent to Frost as they worked on the book in a time when correspondence between Philadelphia and London was a slow, laborious process. But finding out that one of Lewis Carroll's illustrators was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery was a rabbit hole which I eagerly entered.
Arthur Burdett Frost was born on 17 January 1851, when his father was 50 and his mother 41. He was the ninth of ten children, only two of whom survived beyond his teenage years. His father, John Frost, was born in Kennebunk, Maine in 1800, descended from Nicholas Frost, who came to America in 1632. After a year at Bowdoin College, he graduated from Harvard in 1822 and took a job as headmaster of the Mayhew School in Boston. In 1827, he moved to Philadelphia and became headmaster at a school for young ladies. On 4 May 1830, he married Sarah Ann Burdett, 1809-1882, of Boston, at the Second Church Unitarian in Boston, in a ceremony conducted by the minister, Ralph Waldo Emerson. In 1838, John was one of the inaugural eight instructors at Central High School, which had just opened midway between Market and Clover on Juniper Street. He was a professor of fine writing. In addition to being an educator, John Frost was a prolific writer. He wrote many textbooks that proved popular, including Frost's Practical Grammar, which was spelled G-R-A-M-M-E-R, and he wrote that in 1842. There was The Pictorial Life of General Jackson in 1845, Pictorial History of the World, Great Events in Modern History, and Thrilling Adventures Among the Indians, all of which were advertised in 1853. Heroic Women of the West in 1854, The Life of Empress Josephine. A complete list is prohibitive. He wrote more than 300 books, and many of them were written under pseudonyms of Robert Ramble or William V. Moore. For a while, he was also an assistant editor of Godey's Ladies' Book under Sarah Josepha Hale. John Frost died at 59 in December 1859. Sarah outlived him by more than two decades. There is an open book on top of his and Sarah's tombstone at Laurel Hill Cemetery. John and Sarah's daughter, Sarah Annie Burdett Frost, 1837-1882, who's also buried at Laurel Hill, was the fourth oldest child. She married Captain William Shields in 1866, and she too became an author. Her most notable work, Almost a Man, was published in 1877 under the name S. Annie Frost. It was illustrated by her brother, Arthur. Charles William Frost, 1848-1939, buried at Woodland Cemetery, was a drummer boy training for the front when the Civil War ended. He acted as an advertising agent for many years, and he eventually purchased Godey's Ladies Book late in its publication run. Under the pseudonym of C.S. Kibler, he wrote a book, Wasted Sweetness, in 1875, which was also illustrated by his brother. George Frederick Frost, 1839-1864, was a Civil War Union officer, commissioned as a first lieutenant in Company B, 115th United States Colored Infantry, on 22 August 1864. He died of typhus at Bowling Green, Kentucky, in September of 1864, when Arthur was 13 years old. Arthur Burdett Frost, now known primarily as A.B. Frost, was 15 years old when he was apprenticed with a wood engraver, who did not let him touch a piece of wood for six months, and then declared he had no talent for drawing. 
Later, he worked in the office of a lithographer. He sketched in the evenings and was mostly self-taught, although he did study for a while under Thomas Aikens at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. While he was there, Frost was one of Aikens' models. In the painting, now known as The Swimming Hole, Frost is thought to be the redhead thigh-deep in water and reaching up to the rocks with his left hand. Aikens himself is swimming toward Frost. In 1874, he was a struggling 23-year-old lithographer when a friend, William J. Clark, recommended him to his brother, Charles Heber Clark, 1841-1915, buried at Montgomery Cemetery in Norristown. Charles Clark was writing a book called Out of the Hurly Burly, or Life in an Odd Corner. He was using the pen name Max Adler. When the book came out, it contained nearly 400 illustrations, almost all by the young Frost. It was a smashing success. It sold more than a million copies. Frost's knack for portraying any type of scene, comedic or otherwise, made him an ideally flexible artist. He could draw in grotesque, finely finished, or sketchy styles, applying whichever was most appropriate to the scene or the medium. By his 30th birthday, A.B. Frost had illustrated five more books, including American Notes and Pictures from Italy by Charles Dickens. In 1876, Frost was hired by Harper and Brothers Publishing House. The period 1880 to 1910 is called appropriately the Golden Age of American Illustration, and Harper's employed some of the decade's most prolific artists, E.W. Kemble, Frederick Remington, Thomas Nast, Winslow Homer. They ran stories by some of the 19th century's most significant writers, including Herman Melville and Mark Twain. A.B. Frost and Howard Pyle became such good friends that Frost served as best man at Pyle's 1881 wedding. Frost spent this period supplying illustrations for Harper's Weekly, Punch, Scribner's, and most notably, Life magazine, which started publishing in 1883. While studying in London, Frost received a letter from Charles L. Dodgson, dated 7 January 1878. Dodgson identified himself as, quote, the writer of a little book, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which was illustrated by Tennille, whom, I am sorry to say, will not now undertake woodcuts, end quote. Dodgson asked Frost to consider illustrating an upcoming book. He had seen his work in a London paper called Judy, and he liked what he saw. Frost agreed to become his illustrator. The proposed collection of poems was called Rhyme and Reason, each of them with a question mark after it. It featured Phantasmagoria and some other poems which had been published in England in an 1869 collection. Dodgson and Frost began a correspondence about the new work. Now, in a letter to Frost, dated 7 May 1878, Dodgson wrote something that makes our skin crawl more than 140 years later. Quote, The figure you kindly propose to draw for me, if you mean the silhouette for it, I will accept it gratefully as such. But if you intend yet to do another, that I might suggest what I should like. It would be a shaded pencil drawing, a study from life, but not a cupid, 
that I may keep it as an expression of your power in drawing a beautiful figure. As it is not for publication, you need not put an atom of drapery on it. And I can quite trust you, even if you made a full front view, to have a simple classical figure. I would rather not have an adult figure, which always looks to me rather in need of drapery. A girl of 12 is my ideal of beauty of form. A pretty face would be in a pleasant addition, but by no means essential. A beautiful form is what I should especially like to have as a specimen of your skill. The letter goes on, he signs it, and then the P.S., he says, If you know any child model, about 10, that is not forward and vulgar, you might just ask the question of the mother if she would be willing to have the child photographed. The photograph to be for me and for her only, unless she gave further a leave, but certainly not for sale. End quote. Dodgson was not an easy creative partner. For one thing, he supplied Frost with sketches that Frost was expected to copy. Although Dodgson was known as a meticulous note-keeper, he wrote to Frost on 26 November 1878, I do not remember how much we settled with regard to what passages were to be illustrated and how. Whatever we settled, you can, of course, carry out. But in his next letter, dated 28 December, Dodgson wrote, I fear you will be disappointed to hear that the number of pictures you have drawn for that one poem is far in excess of what I can possibly undertake to make use of. It is a great pity you ran the risk of drawing so many blocks without a previous agreement. And a month after that, on 30 January 1879, Dodgson wrote, Now that I have returned to Oxford and have opened your parcel of blocks and read the letter accompanying them, I see how entirely mistaken I was in my last letter. I hope you will forgive my hastiness in writing it. No doubt you are quite right as to the number we agreed upon. I had forgotten it. End quote. Most of Frost's letters are lost. We do not know what he was thinking while waiting for the letters to go to and from London. Dodgson actually had some personal doubts about his new illustrator. He wrote in his diary, If only he could draw a pretty child, he might do my next book, but there seems little hope of it. In February 1881, Dodgson chastised Frost for not prioritizing his artwork for the book, despite being paid in advance. This is a very difficult letter to read. It goes on page after page, but he says, quote, I made no stipulation that you should work exclusively on my book and undertake no other work until it was done. But I do hope you will see your way to doing one thing or the other and devote yourself either to Mr. Harper's work or else to mine exclusively until it is done. In July 1883, as the last illustrations were being completed, Dodgson even took to altering Frost's drawings. Quote, you will be glad to know that, after all, I have used the headpiece of a game of fives. In my last, I told you the children were not pretty enough. My chief objections were to the mouths of the two full faces, which were heavy and shapeless and sadly turned down at the corners. 
But on second thoughts, I ventured on doctoring the drawing a bit, erased the downturned corners, and made the upper lip of the kneeling child more shapely. I hope you will forgive my having taken such liberties with your drawing. Dodson's Rhyme or Reason was finally published in mid-November 1883 with illustrations by Frost, the originals of which are in the Rosenbach collection. Dodson liked the illustrations enough to hire Frost for his next planned book, A Tangled Tale, and Frost started to send new artwork. But in February 1885, Dodson wrote that, quote, I fear I cannot use any of them in their present state. In neatness and finish and clearness of drawings, these seem to me to fall as far short of the average of what you drew on paper for the former book, and those in turn fell far short of what you drew on wood. To make my meaning clear, I had better begin by asking you to put before you either Alice or the looking glass and to examine the details of any one of the pictures with a magnifying glass, and then to do the same thing with one of the best you drew for me on wood. The Nail in the Coffin comes on 1 July 1885. Dodgson had started every prior letter with the salutation, Dear Mr. Frost. This one began, Dear Sir, I feel I cannot, in common courtesy, persist in a form of address which you have discarded. I deeply regret, as I said by anticipation in my last, that any remarks of mine should displease you. But I think no good would be done by discussing your letter in detail, or by mooting the question whether the change has been, as you think, in my views of your style of drawing, or, as I think, in the drawing itself. And thus ended the correspondence between Charles Litwidge Dodson and Arthur Burdett Frost. When A Tangled Tale was published, it had but six illustrations by A.B. Frost. Now, while working with Dodson, Frost opened a studio at 1338 Chestnut Street. He plunged into illustrations for Random Shots, his third book for Max Adler. While he was studying at PAFA, he had become familiar with the photographic experiments of Yedward Muybridge, the, the Edward Mubridge we've talked about before, um, his experiments to capture motion, and photographic studies by Aikens as models for some of his more famous portraits, such as Samuel Gross. Muybridge and Aikens were using the newly developed dry plate methods of John Carbutt, whom I recently discovered in an unmarked grave at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. He will get a podcast eventually. Some historians feel that Charles Dodgson stopped his pursuit of photography when dry plates became available because they made it easy for almost anyone to become a photographer. Frost was one of the first cartoonists to develop his style based on photographs. These inspired him to publish his first sequential stories, what would now be considered comic strips. His illustrations from the 1880s and the 1890s are now recognized as some of the earliest examples of the American comic strip style, much admired and emulated by other pioneers like Richard F. Outcalt in The Yellow Kid, 1885, Rudolph Dirks in The Katzenjammer Kids, 1897, 
and Edward Burr Opper in Happy Hooligan, 1900, and Alphonse and Gaston, 1902. Some cartoon scholars even give him credit for influencing the great George Harriman and Crazy Cat, 1913. Now, to take this logic a step further, Frost's representations of animal motion in his still drawings made him a true forebear of Mickey Mouse, Bugs Bunny, Donald Duck, and other classic cartoon characters. One of Frost's greatest contemporary admirers was American cartoonist Windsor McKay, who is remembered today for the comic strip Little Nemo, 1905 to 1914, and one of the first animated cartoons, Gertie the Dinosaur, 1914. Frost's work was not limited to comic strips. In 1884, he supplied five illustrations for Theodore Roosevelt's Hunting Trips of a Ranchman. It was also in 1884 that he finally published the first work under his own name, Stuff and Nonsense. This book was so successful that a second edition was released three years later. It contained one of his best-known series of drawings called Our Cat Takes Rat Poison. Every frame is one of action. It served as a model for comic strip artists in the future. Seek it out online. It is an amazing thing to look at. Other books followed under his own name, The Bull Calf and Other Tales in 1892, Carlo, Tales of a Woebegone Dog in 1912. He even illustrated Tom Sawyer Detective by Mark Twain in 1896. His biggest success may have been in 1895 when Frost accepted an invitation from journalist and folklorist Joel Chandler Harris to supply the illustrations for Harris's book, Uncle Remus, His Songs and Sayings. Harris loved the 112 drawings enough to dedicate the book to him. In a letter to Frost, Harris wrote, The book was mine, but now you have made it yours, both sap and pith. It was a huge success, and Frost's popularity continued to grow. Frost ended up illustrating more than 400 books. In addition to his illustrations, he was a fine artist in watercolors. This is astonishing, considering that Frost was colorblind. He needed help in choosing the colors for his paintings. He specialized in sporting prints, which remain highly collectible among enthusiasts, especially golf and hunting. There was a 2015 auction in South Carolina where A.B. Frost's 14 by 22 inch 1895 watercolor Quail, a Covey Rise, sold for $180,000. The previous record for an A.B. Frost work was set on 18 October 1989 when Sotheby's sold Autumn Woodcock Shooting for $85,250. Original calendars with prints by Frost, especially for Winchester. They bring large bids when they come on the market. Now, while he was at PAFA, Arthur met Emily Louise Levis Phillips, who had studied art in Germany and was herself a professional artist. In 1883, Arthur and Emily shared a commission for the book New England Bygones by Ellen Chapman Hobbs Rollins. She was writing under the pen name of E-H-R-A-R-R. Arthur and Emily were married on 19 October 1883, 
and took up residence on Long Island. Frost Chestnut Street Studio was taken over by Thomas Aikens. Arthur and Emily spent their most productive years at a country home at Convent Station, New Jersey, which they named Money Sunk. Arthur Burdett Frost, Jr. was born on December 13, 1887. He studied in America until 1906, and then he went abroad and studied at the Académie Julian in Paris. In 1907, he began studying under Henri Matisse, with whom he remained for about a year. He returned to the United States in 1916 and opened a studio in New York City, but he died suddenly on 7 December 1917 of tuberculosis. He is interred at St. James the Less Episcopal Churchyard, not far from Laurel Hill. Arthur Jr. was six days shy of his 30th birthday and unmarried. The youngest son, John Jack Frost, 1890-1937, also studied in Paris. He suffered from poor health through much of his life, and as a young adult, spent two years in a tuberculosis sanitarium in Switzerland. After becoming a successful illustrator in New York City, he moved out west, seeking a dry climate for his health. Jack married Priscilla G. Morgridge in 1922. After a honeymoon in Santa Barbara, he settled with his new wife in Pasadena, California. He started painting the local landscape and became famed for his scenic paintings. One of his works, Spring 1926, sold for $269,000 in 2013. Jack died on 5 June 1937. He was 47 years old. He is also in the family plot. A.B. and Sarah moved to Paris in 1908. They returned in 1916 to settle in Wayne, Pennsylvania, until 1924 when they joined Jack in Pasadena. Arthur Burdett Frost died in his sleep on 22 June 1928. He was 77 years old. Frost was involved in the Philadelphia Sketch Club, Society of Independent Artists, and the Society of Illustrators. His work was exhibited at the Tile Club, Chicago World's Fair, and the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. Now he is represented in many museums, including the Sterling and Francine Clark Art Institute, Shelburne Museum, National Gallery, New Britain Museum of American Art, New York Historical Society, Parish Art Museum in Watermill, New York, <laughs> founded by Samuel Longstreth Parish, who is interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery. And yes, I will have to do a podcast about him one of these days. His work is also at the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco, the Brandywine River Museum, the Delaware Art Museum, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and Princeton University Art Museum. He was recognized as a pillar in American art history in 1985 when he was inducted into the Society of Illustration Hall of Fame. One of his contemporaries, Joseph Pennell, had passionately claimed in 1920, A.B. Frost is the only comic artist we have or have had. The rest are mostly a disgrace, even to this land of artless, childish vulgarians. His marble gravestone is melting. It's barely legible. But his illustrations are destined to live for as long as people admire and collect his artwork.
If you have been to the conservatory and bell tower at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, you have seen the magnificent tomb of Charles W. Sulis, which faces the parking lot from the Green Lawn section. The centerpiece is a large sarcophagus in a style called a Scipio tomb, based on the design of the tomb of Consul Lucius Cornelius Scipio, dating from 300 BCE. The original is housed in the Vatican Museum. People are immediately drawn to the glass-covered underground crypt a few feet in front of the sarcophagus. There are several like it at West Laurel Hill, but looking inside them is rather futile. The glass is stained. Frequently, it's fogged. It helps make the underground vault into a greenhouse. Any loose plants or seeds that work their way inside find an environment that encourages growth. Now, after staring at the glass-covered hole in the ground, people usually make their way to a life-size statue of a young woman in a toga and sandals who's standing by the sarcophagus. She's not an angel. There are no wings. Cemetery statues of men tend to be portraits, while statues of women are usually not a representation of the deceased female, but of an idea or a virtue. For instance, just a few feet from the Sula's tomb is the final resting place of the father of baseball, Harry Wright. That statue looks like Harry Wright. There are seven virtues, the theological, faith, hope, and charity, and the cardinal virtues, temperance, prudence, fortitude, and justice. Faith is a woman with a cross, a chalice, or a candle. Hope is usually seen with an anchor. Charity is usually nursing an infant, and she may be depicted with a flame, or a candle, or a torch, or offering food. Temperance usually appears on the tomb of prohibitionists and teetotalers. She is carrying a water pitcher. Prudence is not often found in a cemetery, but when she's seen, she carries a mirror and is associated with snakes. Fortitude is a female warrior, taking a confident stance with a club or a sword at her side. And justice is more commonly seen at courthouses than cemeteries, usually carrying scales. So, what to make of the life-size woman on the Sulis gravestone? We know she was carved of blue westerly granite in 1898-99, and she cost about $3,000. That means she stood overlooking the family gravesite for more than 30 years before Charles W. Sulis was interred in 1931. Her right hand is starting to reach up, but it's empty. Her left hand is held toward her breast. Her elbow is bent. And the hand contains what some people have described as a smartphone, as if she's about to shoot a selfie. I have my own theory. Charles W. Sulis was one of the premier restaurateurs in Center City. His Rathskeller was located across the street from City Hall. My opinion, the woman is a waitress. She's waiting to take your order on her pad. Every time I see her, I want to slip a pencil into her right hand and maybe a name tag on her toga that says Dot or Pearl. Now, what does Charles W. Sulis have to do with Lewis Carroll? Sulis came to this country from Hanover, Germany when he was 14. He opened his famous Rathskeller in the Betts building at Broad and Penn in 1893. We'll talk more about Mr. Betts in the June podcast. 
His Rathskeller was extremely popular among locals. Many a business deal was settled over a sumptuous meal accompanied by any of a number of draft beers at Sulis's place. It was mentioned in Guides to the City as a must-see place for tourists with its three separate dining rooms and luxurious furnishings. In 1914, he opened the Sulis Hotel at Broad and Arch, which he operated until 1920. One of the specialties at Sulis's Rathskeller was the mock turtle soup, also called snapper soup, which was to 19th century Philadelphia what a cheesesteak was a hundred years later. Remember in chapter 9 of Alice in Wonderland, the queen says to Alice, Have you seen the mock turtle yet? No, said Alice. I don't even know what a mock turtle is. It's the thing mock turtle soup is made from, said the queen. Carol portrays the mock turtle as a very melancholy character. He tells Alice his story of going to school in the sea. His teacher was an old sea turtle called Tortoise. And when Alice asked him why he was called Tortoise, if he was a turtle, the mock turtle answers, We called him Tortoise because he taught us. Carol's illustrator, John Tenniel, gives a chimeric appearance to the mock turtle. He is clearly an assemblage of creatures, the head of a calf, the body of a turtle, and the feet of a pig. So how important was turtle soup in America? John Adams wrote in his diary that on several occasions, turtle appeared on the dinner table during the course of many entertainments he enjoyed while visiting Philadelphia for the First Continental Congress. Founding fathers Washington, Hamilton, and Burr, along with Adams, were all members of an exclusive dining group called the Hoboken Turtle Club. They would frequently gather to eat turtle soup with boiled eggs and brandy. Turtle soup was important enough to be served at Abraham Lincoln's second inauguration in 1865. And President William Howard Taft chose his primary White House chef on the man's ability to cook turtle. I found a wonderful article online. It's from the Penn Museum magazine called Expedition. The article is The Turtles of Philadelphia's Culinary Past, an historical and zooarchaeological approach to the study of turtle-based foods in the city of brotherly love circa 1750 to 1850. The author, Tegan Schweitzer, tells their story in detail. In the colonial period, the large ocean-bound green sea turtles were preferred. They could vary in size from 1 pound to 900 pounds, although most of them were in the 50 to 300 pound range. Turtles were typically imported from the West Indies to Philadelphia as often as three times a week, along with other exotics like guavas, coconuts, limes, and bananas. And then they were auctioned from the docksides to restaurants and caterers. The largest turtles would be served at banquets or festivals which would be advertised in the newspapers and required purchasing tickets in advance. Naturally, the emptied turtle shell turned upside down served as the massive soup terrine. Recipes for turtle were complex, sometimes running to five or six pages in a cookbook, and they were pricey and involved long preparation time, many spices. Although turtle soup was probably the favorite, 
butchering and preparing a single large sea turtle could result in as many as five to seven different dishes. Steaks, internal organs, flippers could all be served as solo dishes or part of a casserole or a stew. Turtle meat was often compared to veal. How did it taste? Well, one fan said, oh, that turtle soup. How it sticks to the ribs and how it leaves a taste in the mouth that one wishes could be perpetual. Mock turtle came along in the mid-19th century as a substitute for the increasingly hard-to-find real things. These recipes incorporated calves' heads and or feet, which were readily available, and mimicked the flavor and the gelatinous texture of the true dark brown turtle soup. It is almost like eating gravy. The intrepid home cook would need to clean, dress, and simmer a whole calf's head. One cookbook helpfully suggested that the cook ask the butcher to unjoint the jaws and take out the brains. Then they would add the heart, liver, vegetables, and seasonings, including mushroom ketchup and Worcestershire, all in an attempt to approximate the texture and flavor of turtle soup. Until late in the 20th century, you could buy canned mock turtle soup from both Campbell's and Heinz. And City Tavern on 2nd Street had a mock turtle soup both on the menu and in cans. Now when I check on Amazon, it looks like Worth More is the only brand you can find. It does have a 4.2 star overall rating, but many people call it disgusting. If you're in or around Philadelphia, you can still get snapper soup, as it's now called in many Philadelphia restaurants. Warning, don't confuse it with red snapper soup. That's made from red snapper. And don't forget to ask for the dry sherry, which will probably come in a small cruet. Snapper soup isn't authentic without that splash of sherry. Depending on your appetite, it can serve as a full meal. Sansom Street Oyster House offers a bowl for $13. In the Reading Terminal Market, you can get it at both Beck's Cajun Cafe and Pearl's Oyster Bar. As a tribute to a Philadelphia landmark, the old bar at 125 Walnut Street, which was the prior location of old original bookbinders, offers snapper soup. And even out on City Avenue in Upper Darby, you can get a decent bowl of snapper soup at the Lanark Diner. So, the next time you visit West Laurel Hill Cemetery and you park at the Bell Tower, walk up to the lady guarding the Sula's tomb, put in your order for a bowl of snapper soup. Maybe it will be ready for you when you finish your walk. In mid-May, the next episode of Biographical Bites from Bala will feature the story of a hobo who became one of the most honored professors at the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Lauren Isley. His works on anthropology and philosophy are read to this day. Publishers Weekly once called him the modern Thoreau, and science fiction writer Ray Bradbury called him every writer's writer and every human's human. One of us, yet most uncommon. A remarkable figure and an even more remarkable writer who is interred at West Laurel Hill. 
The June episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, is called In Heaven There Is No Beer. As we learn about how and why Philadelphia became the Suds capital of the United States through the Parats and the Poths and the Bergdahls and the Betzes and the Peppers and many other brewers interred at both Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. An easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the tiny lot across the street. (laughs) Street parking on Ridge is not recommended. Yes, you can park on the cemetery grounds. Pick your spot carefully, please, where people can get by. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakidwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the Scepter Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., now through October. And then we revert back to 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., November through March. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, and strollers, both the two-footed and the four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours. We expect you to follow current CDC guidelines regarding masks when you join us. And we still have some pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at the laurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits. And at least two members-only podcasts of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me at joe at joelex.net. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I use for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. If you are an amateur scholar of Alice, I recommend a marvelous podcast. It's called Alice is Everywhere. It's a series of 20 to 30 minute vignettes done by a brilliant researcher, narrator, and voice actor, Heather Haya. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's H-A-I-G-H-A. She starts the series by reading both Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, a chapter per podcast, and then discusses what she has read. 
If you have not paid attention to Alice in a few years, now is your opportunity to get back into her magical world with this podcast and blog. Alice is everywhere. Bibliography. Well, for Eldridge Reeves Johnson, there's an article in the New York Times called How a Man with an Idea Made Millions in 12 Years. It's from 28 August 1910. Also from the New York Times, Alice Manuscript, A British Treasure Bought for America by Alan Raymond. That's from the 4 April 1928 edition. That went with the auction of Alice that uh, A.S.W. Rosenbach. And by the way, I pronounce it Rosen. I'd always pronounce it Rosenbach. And uh, when the Rosenbach put out its podcast, they pronounce his name Rosenbach. So I've started calling him Rosenbach also. Sometimes I slip and go back to Rosenbach because I said that for so many years. Anyway, A Dog Has Nine Lives, The Story of the Phonograph by H.S. Marinus. That's M-A-R-A-N-I-S-S. It's from the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, Volume 193, Revival of Depressed Industries, September 1937, pages 8 through 13. And then the big one is His Master's Voice in America, 90 Years of Communications, Pioneering, and Progress. Victor Talking Machine Company, Radio Corporation of America, General Electric Company. That's edited by Frederick O. Barnum III, copyright General Electric Company, 1991. Chapter 3, The Victor Talking Machine Company, 1901 to 1929. It goes from page 13 to page 127, and it is an excellent, excellent source of information on Eldridge Reeves Johnson and uh, the early Victor Talking Machine Company. On Morris Parish, some observations upon the Morris L. Parish collection of Victorian literature, its rarer books, usefulness, etc., by David A. Randall. That's in the Princeton University Library Chronicle. November 1946, Volume 8, Number 1, pages 38 to 50. The Morris L. Parrish Collection of Victorian Novelists by Alexander D. Wainwright. The Princeton University Library Chronicle, Volume 62, Number 3, Spring 2001, pages 362 to 375. And my favorite, Parrish the Thought, Alice's Misadventures at Christ Church, Oxford. That's by August A. Imholtz, Jr. That's also from the Princeton University Library Chronicle, Volume 72, Number 3, Spring 2011, pages 752 to 760. After I did the section on Parrish, I went to the graveyard to get a picture of his stone, and I expected some big, impressive stone. It is a small stone. His name is barely legible on top of it. It doesn't stick more than a foot out of the ground, and I was just amazed. It's mixed in with the rest of the the Parrish family down there in Section U. And then on A.B. Frost, there is the A.B. Frost book by Henry Reed, Charles E. Tuttle Company, 1967. Lewis Carroll and His Illustrators, an absolutely fascinating read. Um, It's edited by Morton and Cohen and Edward Ithaca Wakeling. That's New York Cornell University Press, 2003. The Photographic Eye and the Vision of Childhood in Lewis Carroll by Rosella Malardi, Studies in Philology, 
volume 107, number 4, fall 2010, pages 548 to 572. And then, as I mentioned in the podcast, works by and related to C.L. Dodgson, Lewis Carroll in the Rosenbach Museum and Library, dated February 2020, 17-page bibliography uh, that can be found online. As far as Charles Sulis, there's a wonderful article you can find online. It's called The Turtles of Philadelphia's Culinary Past, an historical and zooarchaeological approach to the study of turtle-based foods in the city of brotherly love, circa 1750 to 1850. That's by Tegan Schweitzer. That is in the magazine Expedition, which is Penn, um, which is the Penn Museum Journal, Volume 51, Number 3, Winter 2009, pages 37 to 45. I found it online, though. Thanks for listening, and stay safe, stay well.